So sweet, we're in Galatians. Right after 1st and 2nd Corinthians in your Bible, you'll find the little letter of Galatians. And uh, this was the first uh, teaching series I did at CTK uh, over 15 years ago through Galatians. I threw those notes out, actually. I was thinking about those poor people that had to listen to me preach back then. Amazingly, some of you are still around. So God bless you. <laughs> so we're going to go uh, through Galatians uh, in the weeks to come here. And this is just a great little letter. So let's, uh, let's pray this morning and we'll get, we'll, we'll get into it and get our bearings. Father, we just thank you that we could come and uh, spend time with each other this morning and seek you. Lord, that's our desire to draw near to Christ. And uh, we pray, Lord, as we spend time in your word today, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Lord, we want to be people that are well-equipped to serve you. And so, God, we just invite by your spirit that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would bring correction, that you'd bring rebuke if necessary. Lord, that you would bring encouragement and training in righteousness. Lord, that the word of God would take root in each one of our hearts. And so we just pray for the Spirit's unction and power upon the teaching of the Word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Galatians, this, this letter, of course, is by the Apostle Paul. It's pretty crazy when you think about it that Paul uh, wrote at least 12 of the 27 books or letters that are in the New Testament uh, the letter of Galatians is interesting because it's uh, probably, it might have been his first, it might be just after 1 Corinthians, but this is one of the earlier writings of the Apostle Paul. And of course, each one of his letters is uh, addressed to various churches or various individuals facing different struggles. Maybe they were facing a, a struggle with doctrine or a personal situation in their life or they're growing in uh, you know, personally in their walk with the Lord and in church leadership. Sometimes Paul was writing to address different issues of uh, false doctrine and false teachers. And his letters, you know, when you go through them, they definitely have patterns and similarities among them. Often he expresses prayers, words of encouragement, correction, rebuke when necessary. And the letter to the Galatians uh, is generally no different. There are some differences. We'll, we'll see one of those this morning. But the letter to Galatians is not actually addressed to one church in particular, but to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia. It is uh, modern-day Turkey. Paul had traveled through Galatia on his first two missionary journeys. And Acts chapter 13 and 14 tell us about his first time through there. Acts chapter 16 tells, tells us about his next visit through those cities. I actually got a map for you to chuck up on the screen just to help you get your bearings. Modern day region of Turkey. Isn't it awful what's happened in Turkey this week? Yeah, it's just, we need to just continue to pray for that nation and those folks. So let's actually do that right now. Lord, we don't confess to understand when we uh, look across the world and see devastation like that nation's facing right now. And so, Lord, we just ask you to have mercy. We just uh, pray for those that have lost homes and lost everything and lost family members and uh, the devastation communities have faced. God, we just pray um, that people would meet you in the midst of that, that they'd come to know the hope of Jesus.
Um, and God, that your comfort would be there. And so I, I just pray, Lord, that you'd raise up many workers uh, who will serve in Jesus' name, who will share the truth of Christ. And we, we pray, God, that in the midst of, uh, yeah, all this trouble, that you would do something amazing for your glory and your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so Paul traveled through the southern part of Galatia on his first missionary uh, journey. There were four cities in particular that the book of Acts tells us about that he visited in that area. From, from uh, east to west, you've got Antioch over here in the green, Iconium, Lystra, and, and Derby. And Paul went through these four cities. On the first missionary journey, he was with Barnabas. Him and Barnabas set off together from the other city of Antioch in Syria. And it was a significant trip for Paul, his first missionary journey. In fact, it was in Antioch that he was first called Paul. And he kind of became the leader of the missionary team over Barnabas. It was significant for him. In each of these cities, they established churches, but it wasn't smooth sailing. Like when they went to Antioch and Pisidia there, uh, there was strong Jewish opposition. And so Paul turned and he took the message of Jesus to the Gentiles and there was a great response from the Gentiles in that city. And so the Jews stirred up persecution against Barnabas and Paul. And they actually left the city. That's the spot where, where Paul shook the dust off his feet and left Antioch and went on to Iconium. In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas saw success, but they also had to flee from the city before they were killed. Okay, In Lystra, Paul and Barnabas healed a cripple. God worked through them. A church was established. And the people in Lystra, was the, that was the city that mistook. They, they, they called Paul and Barnabas gods. They called them Zeus and Hermes. And, and Paul and Barnabas, you know, barely restrained the people from worshiping them. And then as they're there, the Jewish people came from the previous cities of Antioch and Iconium and they persuaded the crowds to turn on Paul. Paul was dragged out of the city of Lystra and they stoned him, leaving him for dead. Like they thought they killed him. And what happened was those early disciples gathered around and prayed for him and he rose up. I always wonder, man, I wonder if Paul was actually stoned to death that day and the Lord raised him from the dead. I, scripture doesn't tell us. He went on from Lystra to Derby, where he preached the gospel and God raised up many disciples. And then from Der Derby, Paul and Barnabas looped back, loop back from east to west through each of those cities again where they strengthened those churches. And then on his second missionary journey, Paul was with Silas, and this time they traveled, they took the land route through Cilicia and through Galatia, and Silas was with him. And when they got to the area of Lystra and Derby, Paul connected with a young man who became very significant in his life, a a young guy whom he invested in, Timothy. And Timothy joined the rest of the missionary journey and, and traveled with Paul from that time on. And they went through these cities again, strengthening and encouraging the believers. So when we turn to the book of Galatians, what we have to know is this, is that, that Paul is deeply invested in these churches. Okay, He's the man who planted these churches. He's the man who witnessed to many of these folks or led them to Jesus, who established the leadership teams in each of these areas. Literally for him, 
You know, these cities weren't just preaching and prayers. He had sweat and he had spilled blood in some of these cities to see the work of God established. It was Timothy's home region. So when Paul got word of what was going on amongst these Galatian churches, he sat down and he penned this letter to them. And what's interesting about this letter to the Galatians is that from all the letters of Paul, the 12 letters that we know are his in the New Testament, this is the only one that is directly penned right out of his own hand. You know, Usually he would be dictating this message and someone would be writing it down for him and they would put pen to paper and pass it on. But the letter to the Galatians was literally written by the hand of Paul. Galatians personally come, came from his own hand because he was so astonished what began to unfold in these churches. You see, after he had been there, a group of people called the Judaizers had slipped in among the, the churches. The Judaizers were Jewish false teachers. You know, when false teachers come into a church, it's not like, you know, they enter into the church and say, hey, we're here, we're, you know, we're here to teach false doctrine. We're here to teach another Jesus that's not a very effective way, right? No, what do they do? They slip in like a, a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. You see, Satan typically has two ways that he will make plays against the church, the body of Christ. One is to attack from without, to attack outside, maybe through persecution, which is typically it has a, a disappointing outcome for the devil when he attacks the church from the outside because Persecution might pick people off from the edges and the fringes of the church, but it also strengthens the resolve of the faithful. And often, you know, a church does surprisingly well when it faces uh, persecution, at least, you know, when it comes to the measurements of true success. So Satan will attack without. The other move is to attack from within. Orchestrate an inside job, so to speak. False teachers in wolves' clothing come in and introduce false teaching. Or another way to have an inside job on a church is for there to be an issue of sin within the body and it comes to light and devastates the body of Christ. So two ways of attack. Attack the church from the outside or attack the church from the inside. And inside jobs are typically way more devastating. Have you witnessed that in the body of Christ in churches? They can be very devastating and Paul had last been, since he had last been with these churches in Galatia, the devil had orchestrated an inside job. Wolves in sheep's clothing had slipped in amongst the people, a group of people that the New Testament gives the name Judaizers. And the Judaizers themselves had a two-pronged attack. They did two things. Firstly, they preached a version of the gospel that is not actually the gospel whatsoever. I'm going to call it, I'm going to refer to it as Jesus Plus today. And the message they preached was this. You know, what Paul taught was good, but he left out some important things. He preached Jesus to you. But what he didn't make clear was when a Gentile becomes a follower of Christ, they need to add to their faith in Jesus the following of Old Testament laws. You need to become Jewish when you follow Jesus. Essentially, a Gentile needs to become Jewish. You know, circumcision and all. Follow the law of Moses. 
Jewish believers need to continue to follow the law. You got in the door with Jesus, but you need to finish the job with your own good works and obedience to the law. And so it was this message of Jesus plus that got into the church. Then the second part of their attack, the second prong involved a personal attack against Paul himself. And that's necessary because if you want to undermine uh, the message that a man preaches, then you undermine the man himself. So it sounded like this, you know, you know, Paul, he's a good teacher. He did some amazing stuff coming through Galatia here and establishing these churches, but we should be clear on something with regards to Paul. Like, don't put him on the level of the 12 apostles, the apostles of Jesus. I mean, the apostles, the 12 apostles were personally commissioned by Jesus. Paul is no apostle and he's got some good things, but there are some things that are clearly lacking in his life and his ministry and his message. And, and he failed to explain to you that you need to become Jewish in your faith. Add the law, get circumcised as a sign of the covenant relationship. The gospel's not free and you need to work at this thing. And so the Judaizers preached a message of Jesus plus. They created strain in the Galatian churches and Paul, uh, between the Galatian churches and Paul to the point that Paul's reputation was undermined and his relationship with these churches was strained. It was like they didn't feel that they could trust Paul anymore because Paul had left out some details. He never told them about the things that they needed to add to the message of Jesus, like obedience to the law and circumcision. He never told them that they needed to add works to the cross. He didn't tell them that Jesus got them in the door, but they would be perfected by their own efforts and strength, their own works. And so the Galatian churches had added to the gospel and they were no longer confident that they could trust Paul. And so this was the situation. So let's, let's see what Paul has to say. Is he going to take this line down or is he going to have something to say? Shall we, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Shall we play some bets? So verse one, it says this. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. I'm like, oh, wow, Paul drops the hammer coming right in here. This is him dropping the hammer the second he introduces himself. You know, in the letters of Paul, he always introduces himself in one of two ways. With those whom the relationship is healthy, Paul will introduce himself and he will say this, I'm a servant of Christ, a servant of the Lord. But when the occasion was deemed necessary, he would assert his authority as an apostle. Paul, an apostle, he says. You know, we don't have apostles in the church today. An apostle is a, a, a sent one, a delegate of the Lord Jesus, a messenger who is sent with orders. Jesus had many disciples. There were far more disciples that followed Jesus during his, his ministry than just the 12 that hung around with him. But there were 12 disciples that Jesus designated apostles. 12 men specifically given apostolic authority to preach the gospel as delegates of the Lord Jesus. And we know this, one of them was a devil, Judas. So there were 11 
And one of the certifications that the Scripture teaches us that qualified the apostles was this. They had been with Jesus and they were commissioned by Jesus. And Paul was not a part of that original group of 12, and the Judaizers used that against him. You know this, that Paul had been a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, but on the road to Damascus, he had had an encounter with the Lord Jesus and his life was transformed. Paul met Jesus. He had a vision of Jesus that left him blind. And in that vision, Jesus commissioned Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So when Paul introduced himself in his letter, it was with the assertion of his apostolic authority. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead that did not come from man nor through man. Paul's authority did not come from a man. Paul's authority did not come from the acknowledgement of a man. His apostolic authority came directly from an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ who commissioned him and designated him apostle to the Gentiles. Of course, this introduction asserts for us that Jesus is more than a man. Jesus Christ, he is God. He is also the one who commissioned Paul in accordance to the will of the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. You know, the Father is the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's no question as to whether or not Paul's appointment was divine in its order. You know, I was thinking about human beings. We love to have, you know, a bunch of letters, maybe in front of our name, maybe behind our name. If you can pile up the letters behind your name, it looks pretty good, you know, degrees and education and lists of institution where you've studied. Well, how about those credentials that Paul has, okay? Uh, an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ and the will of the Father. And he says, there are brothers with me. In other words, as he put his pen to paper, he was not sitting by himself. This wasn't his personal opinion. Other Christians were with him. They had read the letter. They approved of the letter. They accepted his apostolic authority. This was not a self-appointed man. Paul wrote the letter, but it came from everyone who was with Paul, and they agreed with what was written down. Now he says this in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's typical greeting when he wrote to a church was grace and peace, just like he says here to the Galatians. And the order always comes in that sequence, grace and peace. And it's in that sequence because you cannot know the peace of God without the grace of God. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is not something that is earned. Grace is not something that can be deserved. Grace is the kindness and blessing of heaven richly bestowed on people who are undeserving. We say this about grace. Grace is more than mercy. Like mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And when you receive the grace of God, 
you can know and experience the peace of God, the shalom of God. Peace is both peace with God and it is the peace of God. There is peace with God because Christ has paid the penalty of our sin. Christ has made the way for harmony, harmonious relationship with the Father. So there is peace with God and then there is the peace of God. Don't you love the peace of God? The peace of God. There is a peace from God that the word of God describes this way. It transcends understanding. You know, in one sense, I don't know how to explain that. It's just a peace that comes from God and it transcends understanding and it operates in your life independently of circumstance and situation and trial and trouble. What I mean when I'm saying it, it operates independent of life circumstances, it means this, it, it, peace, the peace of God doesn't flee when there's trouble. The peace of God does not flee from your life when life does not go according to your plan. It is a peace that gives confidence and insur- assurance that God is in control. It's a peace that is greater than any human problem. And when you have it, When you have the peace of God, you want it to rule and reign in your heart. You want it to rule your heart and it directs your decision making. You let the peace of God rule. That's what the scripture instructs us to do. And when something robs you of your peace, you pay attention. What's going on here? I'm being robbed of my peace. This is not worth compromising. I'm not going this way in this decision. And man can't give this kind of peace. The world doesn't understand this peace that comes from God and transcends understanding. The rulers of this world think that peace has to do with, you know, having a a life free of trouble or a world without war. They don't understand that, that in their sin, they are at war with God. The war is within. And Christ has made the way of peace. And so Paul says, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 4, the Lord Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. That's important. The Lord Jesus gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And the death of Jesus on the cross was not primarily an act of love, as much as some might say that. It was not primarily an act of heroism. The death of Jesus on the cross was primarily a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for the sin of mankind. It was an act of sacrificial atonement. That's what the cross is about. Jesus gave his life as a sin offering, a sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven. Almost 500 years ago, Martin Luther was reading the book of Galatians and he had a revelation of the grace of God, a man who had been bound up by works, works works-based faith. And he said this about these words. He said, these words are the very thunderclaps from heaven against all forms of self-righteousness. Do you know that Jesus Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for your sin? The sun went out. The curtain in the temple tore in two. 
righteous people were raised from the grave because Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for your sin and we can have harmony with God because of Christ. And when we come to know that in our hearts and minds, we realize we're sinners and we're unable to save ourselves. Let me ask you this. Have you given up trusting in yourself yet? The world says trust in your heart. The world says trust in yourself and the cross confronts that attitude and invites us. Trust in Jesus who gave himself as a sacrifice for your sin. You know, when we give up trusting in ourselves and we trust Christ, that's when the Father counts us as righteousness. You see, Paul says the Lord Jesus gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. That's why Christ came, to deliver you. The gospel is a rescue. It is the rescue plan of God Almighty to deliver you from the evil that characterizes this day. Have you looked out on the world and recognized that it's evil yet? It's evil. The age in which you live is an evil age, Paul said. And that's what, why Christ came, to rescue you, the Israelites. You know, think back to the Old Testament. We're enslaved to Pharaoh and God rescued them. They knew the crack of the whip. They knew the sound of the whip. They knew what it felt like. They knew the toil of making bricks and God rescued them and they tasted water from a rock and they ate bread from heaven. Herod had imprisoned Peter. God sent his angel and opened the prison gates. He rescued him. God came to rescue us, to deliver us. But what's interesting about the history of Israel or even Peter's story is that God did not rescue Israel and Peter out of this world, despite what the authorized version tells you for my authorized friends. God did not rescue them out of this world. We'll talk about it later, Carrie. God did not rescue you out of this world. Paul says he rescued you from this world. From this world. And of course, we're looking forward to the day when Christ comes again and takes his church. But let us not forget, we've not been rescued out of this world. We've been rescued from this world. And if Christ is for us, then who can be against us? If Christ is for us, then what can man do to us? We have been rescued from this world and Christ has injected us back into this world as his ambassadors, as his church, to be salt and light. And he's given us authority. Go into all nations. Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Church, have no doubt. The age in which we live is evil. But Christ has rescued us. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word and the authority to make disciples. You know, people ask that question. Why does God let evil things happen? You know, why does God allow evil to happen to good people? And they don't know that God placed this world when he made it into the hands of many. He placed it into the hands of Adam and Eve, and he gave them dominion and authority. And when they surrendered to temptation and transgressed his word and sinned against him, they not only were surrendering to temptation, they were surrendering their authority. They were surrendering dominion, and they transferred the ownership of this world into the hands of the devil. They submitted to Satan. And the reason why this world is so messed up 
and there's so much evil is because it is in the hands of the devil. Men and women are still sinning. This is an evil age. Satan offered up the kingdoms of this world to Jesus. He said, I'll give these to you. You can avoid the cross. It's an evil age in which we live. And as the evil age continues on, I'm going to tell you this. Jesus warned. He warned his disciples. It's going to get more evil. In the last days, he said it will be as it was in the days of Noah. Do you know how bad that was? Do we know how bad that was? That God would send a flood to wipe out all of humanity minus eight people? Jesus said in the last days, it would be as it was in the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Do we remember from the scripture how bad that was? That fire and brimstone were sent from heaven? But here's the good news. Christ has been sacrificed from our sin. There is, an, a, way of, there is a way of escape from this evil age, and it is through Christ Jesus. And Paul says, all this sacrifice and rescue, it happened according to the will of God. The sacrifice and the rescue, of, the rescue plan of Jesus were put into effect according to the will of God. It wasn't the plan of men, though they crucified him. They were acting according to the will of God. The sacrifice and the rescue aren't even simply the will of Christ Jesus himself, as if the Father didn't want this to be the solution. It was the will of the Father that Christ should suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, Peter said, that he might bring you to God. And in the cross, the will of the Father and the Son were in perfect harmony to rescue men and women from sin's power, from this evil age. Christ's death was for our sin that he might rescue us. That was the gracious will of the Father and his Son. And for that, Paul, just in verse 5, just breaks out into praise. He says to him, be glory and glory, glory forever and ever. Amen. And so that's what Paul preached in these Galatian churches. Christ died on the cross for our sin. He was appointed to preach this message through the word of God. And he, he preached this, that there was grace available, unmerited favor, and there was peace for all who were in Christ. So hear the heart of the apostle in verse 6. I'm astonished. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You know, one of the unique features of the Galatian letter is this, is that Paul offers up no prayer for the Galatian church. You know, it's like usually when he's writing to one of these churches, he just expresses some sort of prayer or thanksgiving to God, you know. But there's no word of praise here. No words of thanksgiving, no pats on the back, you know, no sandwiching in, you know, trouble with words of praise on either end. This situation was way too serious. And so he expresses his astonishment, his marvel, the amazement. He's absolutely flabbergasted that this is happening in the church, that these people would be so unstable and fickle 
and swerving right to left and bobbing up and down, tossed around like a ship on the sea. And he points his finger at those who are causing the trouble. But before he points the finger at the troublemakers, he first points out that this is an act of desertion on the part of the church. See, two things were happening in Galatia. We call them deserting and perverting. Deserting Jesus and perverting the gospel. I like dessert. You like dessert? It's a good thing to have after dinner. But dessert is a dangerous thing to have in your relationship with Jesus. Desertion means to change your loyalty, to transfer your allegiance, to be a turncoat, a traitor. And the church in Galatia was becoming a bunch of traitorous turncoats, spiritual deserters. They were turning from him who had called them by his grace, and they were embracing another gospel, which was, in fact, no gospel whatsoever, Paul says. The gospel is the good news of God's grace. God's grace and Jesus Christ. Grace and peace available through Jesus Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin to rescue us from this evil age. And God forgives undeserving sinners who trust in his son by faith. In the grace of God, he sent Jesus to die for us. In grace, God called us by his spirit through his word to his son. In grace, we were led to repentance and faith. In grace, he justified us. In grace, he sanctifies us. In grace, he will glorify us. All is of grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. All is of grace. Nothing is of our works. And the desertion of the Galatian church, churches was happening through a perversion of the gospel. There was a twisting of the gospel happening in their midst, a distortion. And this is important to note. It's not so much that they were denying Christ as they were making minor alter. Well, they're not minor. They were making alterations to the gospel from its purity that made it no gospel whatsoever. And so what were these troublers doing? They were adding works. They were teaching, you must add your works to the cross of Christ. It was the message, Jesus plus, not grace alone. No, it was Jesus plus Moses. Jesus plus law. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus works. You must add to the work of Jesus by your own efforts. They were preaching, you must finish Christ's unfinished work. When Christ Jesus hung on that cross, suspended there by nails for your sin, and he cried out in thirst, they lifted a sponge to him of sour wine and they put it to his lips. And when he received the sour wine, he said this, it is finished. 
It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work of Christ is a finished work, church. It is finished. You cannot add to a finished work. You cannot add to a perfect sacrifice. You cannot add to Jesus. You cannot add to the rescue plan of Jesus. You cannot add to the gospel of grace. That's intolerable. It's unbearable. It's unacceptable. It is impossible to add to the cross of Christ because Jesus paid it all and all to him. We owe the cross, the blood, the body. You can't add to perfection. You can't add to perfection. So here's the math of salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And to turn from the gospel of grace is to turn from the God of grace. And this was the trouble the Judaizers were causing, false doctrine, perversion of the gospel. And the church should have known better. It was causing confusion. It was causing anxiety. It was causing unrest. You know, in our day, we have to watch out for those who are changing the gospel. They're preaching a message of Jesus plus. Or they're subtracting, they're taking away from Jesus. So firstly, Paul was astonished that this thing was happening to the Galatian churches. And secondly, he was indignant against those who would do so. They were attacking the church, and so Paul is going to attack them, you guys. You know, and he uses languages that, language that you're not, you won't be very comfortable with in church. You know, he says things we don't like to hear in church. He, he said things, but he did so with apostolic authority. In fact, we're going to read this. He pronounced a curse over these, these teachers. Check it out, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There's a double curse here. You know, we, we like to talk in Scripture about the double blessing, that which comes to the firstborn. But this is a double curse. And this is the strongest language in the New Testament about those who would pervert the gospel of grace. The Greek word that he uses is the word anathema. It's a divine curse. And Paul is saying this. He is saying, this is the gospel, and if someone preaches otherwise, they could go to H-E double hockey sticks. The hell with them. Uh, literally, you guys. That's what Paul is saying. He said, whoa, Paul. That's not very Christian, man. Not very loving, Paul. Tone it down, man. Be a little softer with your words, Paul. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm, I'm not safe here. I need a safe place. Tell me I'm okay, Paul. Tell me I'm enough, Paul. Tell me, Paul, trust my heart. Tell me, Paul, you know, your sin is no big deal. And Paul says this, if you are not in Christ, you are not safe. Look at if these false teachers continued, they were going to take people down with them. They were going to cause great damage to the church and leave a wake of confusion. This is not personal venom from Paul against people because Paul says this. 
He says, even if I or anyone associated with me starts preaching this message of Jesus plus, let them be accursed. I prayed that for my own life going through this message. I said, God, will you curse me if I preach another gospel? We don't preach another gospel. We preach Christ alone. And if an angel even comes and reveals a message of Jesus plus, let them be accursed, Paul said. And this is very important. It's, it's, it's not the messenger that matters. It's the message they preach. The message exposes the messenger, church. The message exposes the messenger by their fruits. You'll know them. They could claim to come from heaven. They could claim to have visions from heaven. They could claim words of prophecy. They could be a Christian musician. They could be the biggest name preacher in the world. The warning is, don't be in awe of the messenger, but test the quality of the messenger by the message they preach. And if they tweak the gospel, doesn't matter what letters are before or behind their name. If they tweak the gospel and pervert it, what school they were educated in or who they are or where they serve, it doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel they preach. Paul said, even if an angel should appear and they don't preach the gospel of grace, it's a message that belongs in hell. Muhammad didn't know that. Joseph Smith didn't know that. And maybe you think, well, that seems a little harsh. Let me remind you that Jesus said it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into a sea than to preach a twisted gospel that will lead people astray. And so this is serious. And what Paul was dealing with in Galatia, you know, didn't become extinct and go the way of the dodo bird in the first century. This is a battle that continues in every generation of the church. It's a battle that has to be fought and won. This is about the purity of the gospel. Today, all over the place, there are those who preach another gospel. And you need to test them. You need to test them. You need to test the words when you listen to them by the word of God. Some take away from Christ. They say sin doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Others add to Christ. They say Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. Look at, don't even take me for granted, church. Don't. When you hear me preach, test it by the word of God. And you can confront me. The word of God is our authority. The word of God is the authority and it reveals to us what the scripture says. You know, one of the things that really bothers me in our days uh, is this is even the problem, I think, of the so-called modern prophets who are about as reliable as a Chinese horoscope. These prophets prophesy out of their own imaginations. And when they get it wrong, the church puts up with it. And in doing so, they're ultimately undermining the trust that people have in the word of God. If you allow modern prophets to be wrong and to think that it's okay, and you continue to listen to them, you'll develop an attitude that you'll transfer to the word of God and you'll think it's okay. It's not okay to be wrong. 
to say it in the name of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The sacrifice of Jesus was perfect. And we don't need to be on a witch hunt, but we should test everything by the word of God. The cultists teach a message of Jesus plus. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, some churches teach a message of Jesus plus, And the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Let's wrap up here. Verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so what Paul says to these churches is not something that's going to make him popular. And he asks, do you think that I'm saying these things to be popular? If I live to, to please men, to minister to men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he was certainly not making himself popular with this message, was he? Because we all love the praises of men. It's the condition of the human heart. But Jesus said this. He said, if you live for the praises of men, you'll get your reward. But you won't be a servant of the Lord. You know, at one time, Paul lived as a Pharisee. At one time, all of his life and all of his righteous acts were about performing so he could be seen by men. He made an outward show of his giving. He made an outward show of his prayer. He made sure he was on the front lines battling the church. He was worried about his reputation and he was worried about his popularity. He wanted to be seen as righteous. And then he met Jesus. And he knew he wasn't righteous. He knew before God he was a sinner. He knew that it was not for the grace of God. He was done. And he discovered the gospel of grace and he wanted others to know that freedom. He wanted others to know the liberty that comes from Jesus alone. He wanted others to know the grace of God and the peace that comes from him alone. He wanted to be a faithful servant of the cross so he didn't speak to please men. He preached to please Christ. Many people believe a false gospel of Jesus plus. If you ask them, how do you know you're saved? They probably won't answer with the name of Jesus. They begin to profess their own good works, their own righteousness, their own efforts before God. Church, we have to preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. Will you stand with me? Julian, I'm going to invite you guys, you and Greg, come lead us. We're going to sing Christ alone this morning. Is that what we're singing, right? Christ alone, sweet. Cornerstone. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, uh, Lord, we just pray that you would, by your spirit, that your word would be like a scalpel and that it would um, dissect from our lives every human effort that would try to add to the cross. Jesus, we just repent of that this morning. We repent of thinking we could add to that which was perfect, your sacrifice on the cross. Forgive us, Jesus. Jesus, we acknowledge this morning that you came to save men from their sins and to deliver us from this evil age. And Jesus, if we're making light of your cross, making light of sin. Lord, we repent of that. Lord, we pray that our lives would just 
preach that message, live that message, Christ alone, grace alone. Lord, this morning, we thank you for your grace. God, I just pray that by your spirit, your grace would just wash over our body today, Lord, over this church. I pray, Jesus, that the peace of God that transcends understanding would guard every heart and every mind, Lord. I pray that as we worship and consider these things, Lord, that your peace would move through our midst like a, like a wave, Lord. That our hearts would be stilled. That our minds would be quiet. And that we would trust Christ alone. We trust you alone, Lord. God, if we've had confusion in our lives about a works-based salvation, I just pray, God, for revelations of grace in our church. Thank you, Lord, that you give us rest. And thank you this morning for your peace in Jesus' name.